Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Tolkien. Today, we are discussing Chapter 6 of Book 2 of The Two Towers, The Forbidden Pool. Now, today, as always, we're going to start off with Katie, who will give us Today in Middle-Earth and Elvish Word of the Day, then swing over to Chase, who will catch us up on the events we covered in last week's episode. After that, we'll spend most of today talking about, like I said, Chapter 6 of Book 2 of The Two Towers of The Forbidden Pool. After that, this is like the 15th time I've said after that. I need a better segue. Uh, we will do our favorites, both from this week of the text and this week of our lives. I am John. I am Katie. And I'm Chase. <laughs> Chase is very excited. So I'm trying yeah. to make up for last week when I was not peppy like, at all. <laughs> where Chase was hungover from his birthday. Yeah. <laughs> um. So to that end, today is Thursday, August 20th. August. August. April. April. That's what I said. Um. I am in Augusta, Maine. No, I'm not. Anyway, yes. All right. <laughs> the 28th of April. Katie, you want to take it away with today in Middle the Earth? The 28th of April. Well, uh, and uh, once again. Just... The sad thing is I was even looking at my calendar that said April in the corner. <laughs> I mean, at least it, the month still started with A. You were, I mean. <laughs> I wasn't like it's December. Hey, hey we're all were... human. At least at least that makes sense. I thought it was February before we started the episode. That, so true. I don't know what happened on my end. That's true. Oh, no, I told a customer today that her account would it would expire in 1986. Wow. And I was like, instead of 2016, like, my fingers just typed 1996. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, anyway, April 28th. Uh, once again, I'm going to rewind us just a couple of days because a couple of things happened this week. Uh, on April 26th in the year 2941, on a Wednesday, what happened but the unexpected party? Our dear oh, friend Bilbo was uh, that would be in April. visited by quite a few dwarves uh, who came to his doorstep. The next day, on the 27th, of course, following, Thorin and company ride out of Hobbiton at 11 a.m. with our dear friend Bilbo still asleep. <laughs> uh, and then, but today, actually, and uh, during our current adventure, in 3018, Frodo is beginning plans for his adventure. So you see that nice kind of synchronicity there. Yep, yep, yep. Because they waited till around... Oh, yeah, that's right. Because the first bits of The Fellowship of the Ring took place not only on Frodo's birthday, but 17 years later, mm -hmm. again, around Frodo and Bilbo's birthday. And yep. after, after, yep. And after, mm -hmm. yeah. And then, oh, yeah, Elvish Word of the Day. Sorry, I'm that's still me. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Uh, Elvish word of the day. The word that I picked today is uh, translates to lake or pool. Oh. And uh, here we go with my uneducated pronunciation. I believe it is pronounced oilin. Oilin. Mm -hmm. I feel like I overpronounced it. <laughs> that, that sounds like uh, one of those... Like oil substitutes they would use in potato chips? Yeah, yeah. Like Olestra? <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> Sorry, Chase, you want to It's like catch a pigeon covered in oil. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so last week... Oh, no. Oh, yes, okay. Uh, basically, Frodo's getting grilled by Faramir about their journey and about his relationship with Boromir. And Faramir is like, yo, Boromir's dead. What happened? Did you... Well, he didn't really say... Like, he didn't try to, like, snag him and say he killed him. He just wanted to, like, see how they parted. And, like, mm -hmm. Faramir tells 
Frodo that Boromir is dead, and we have proof because they found the horn. And now that I'm thinking back on a lot of stuff happened in last week's chapter. And then they make it to this place that's like the window to the west. That's basically a cave. And then Sam, and while they're eating, say some stupid stuff about, hey, there's a ring. Oh, no. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. And Boromir proves that he's a pretty stand-up guy because he's like, I'm not going to take it. And I'm pretty certain Boromir did something stupid around this thing, right? You don't have to answer it. Y'all go to sleep. <laughs> that was it, basically. And that was the chase version. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as has been the case in practically every chapter of Book Two of the Two Towers, we ca- catch up right where we left off. So, in this case, we left Frodo and Sam, who had gone to bed, and we start off with Frodo waking up uh, to find Faramir bending over him. So, this is kind of an ominous image, and Frodo is afraid for a second. Uh, but Faramir, to his credit, kind of senses this and is like, no, 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 don't be afraid. Sorry, I'm a little spooky. Frodo woke up uh, and was like, ah, Nazgul, cool. ah. <laughs> well, also, yeah, you know, if, <laughs> if, if you are Frodo Baggins in this uh, in this world right now, you should be wary if you wake up to find someone leaning over you. <laughs> but no need, it was only Faramir. Yeah, yeah so... um. Faramir is like, you know, will you come with me, Frodo? There's something I want to show you. And so Frodo follows. And of course, as <laughs> tends to happen, Sam <laughs> kind of wakes up and notices. And um, we pass by that window on the west, which was so beautiful and shimmery uh, in the sunlight. And this time it's described in, you know, just as beautiful terminology, but very different, which is. Uh, as he went by the cave mouth, he saw that the curtain was now become a dazzling veil of silken pearls and silver thread, melting icicles of moonlight. But he did not pause to admire it, and turning aside, he followed his master through the narrow doorway in the wall of the cave. So I thought I'd just touch upon that <laughs> at the get-go, since we spent so much time talking about it Oh, yeah, wh- last wh- what week. it looks like. An yeah. extra cool image of that thing, <laughs> that waterfall at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to yeah. add with that one where it was at sunset. Yeah. And it's basically it's it's basically just before dawn. And uh Faramir leads them to this cliff right by the river. Um and Frodo and Sam are both kind of very curious as to why they've been brought here. Uh, and they they remark on how beautiful this landscape is and say, "Okay, well why why were we brought here to admire this <laughs> this beautiful view i mean it's nice what's up dude it's nice but you know this this why did this does this really justify waking up this early and uh faramir as well like yeah but uh, the you know the reason i brought you here is not to stare at at the landscape he tells frodo to look down and uh identify this creature that's kind of skulking around in the water down there well before we get too further though you glanced over I'm not going to let us pass over any <laughs> Sam moments because Sam moments are my favorite. Because Sam is kind of stalking them. Faramir didn't invite Sam. And at this moment, Faramir doesn't mm-hmm. know Sam is following them. And Sam mutters to himself, this is pretty, but was it worth waking up for? And that's when Faramir is like, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was. Hi, Sam. The moonlight over Gondor is beautiful, <laughs> so shut your trap. Actually, it was Samurai, Samwise, you were not brought, but do pay the penalty of your watchfulness. A draft of wine shall amend it. Come look now. Famer's got a weird idea about so. punishment. 
<laughs> as this chapter kind of like happened, like there were some things. Okay, I'm not gonna get ahead of myself, but just keep in mind, Faramir's perception of punishment is a little bizarre, <laughs> to say the least. Well, I think moreover, I think Faramir does yeah. have a great sense yes. of irony, and he called something I, punishment. Yeah. Which Faramir is not to me has a great wit. He really does. Um, which one would expect of something exactly. who themselves after yeah, Mithrandir. Which is, again, why I adore this character so much. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they, he, he tells Frodo, okay, well, look, look down at the, at, at this pool down here and, and there's some kind of creature skulking around. Do you know what that is? Do you know who that is? And, uh, also, hey, should we shoot it? No, no, you shouldn't <laughs> shoot it. Now, if Sam had, you know, said that first, he would have said yes, but we're not going to listen to him, and even, but no. <laughs> yeah. And Sam has half a mind. He's like, you know, if, if he had spoken first, Sam may have said, yeah, sure. Shoot it. <laughs> Cause he knows. Uh, but. They couldn't find me any taters. Yeah, but yeah, Frodo begs them not to, and of course, of course, Faramir has an idea that they know who and what this creature is. So Faramir is kind of baiting them by saying, "Well, he has come to this place, Hennethanun, and the penalty for coming here is, is, death. is death." And Frodo is like, "Well, he doesn't know that." And Faramir is like, "But he came here. He he stalked us. He wants to ambush us." And Frodo is like, "For one thing, he knows little of men." And sly though he is, your refuge is so hidden that perhaps he does not know that men are concealed here. For another, I think he is alluded here by a mastering desire stronger than his caution. He is lured here, you say, said Faramir in a low voice. Can he, does he then know of your burden? Indeed, yes. He bore it himself for many years, replied Frodo. Uh, so right here, Frodo kind of intones more about the ring without saying what the ring is, mm -hmm. just kind of giving more suggestion uh of of what it is of what a sealder's bane is and what his burden and is. of what its power is too um because of course by implying Gollum being drawn here by by yes. the ring that yeah that it's it's got a hold on him um and and Faramir is totally unbelieving that that Gollum would have borne it because I think Faramir still thinks that a Sealder's Bane is some kind of honor or privilege. Yeah, so he's the fact that Faramir still regards it as some kind of treasure, uh, almost because again he's he still is not a hundred percent uh uh it has a hundred percent knowledge of what it is. Of course. Well, and again, like remember that how long has it been since the Sealdor had this had the ring? Mm -hmm. It was like. 3,000 years or longer? Or was it shorter than that? Uh, about, I think it's been like yeah, 2,000. Two, about two, two and a half, I think. Two and a half thousand years, yeah. Yeah, think about like how how like things go crazy and become myths within like 500 years. Mm -hmm. Imagine how that could happen over 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. Like just the crazy probably nonsense that exists of like fairy tale and folklore about this thing. Like bordering on like, and I feel like Tolkien would know this too, mm -hmm. that Something of that power would take upon a mythical, probably even like spiritual aspect within Gondor after all that time, even if anybody necessarily knew about it. I mean, just the name Isildur's Bane, of course. Is, yeah. Yeah, it's very weighty. Um, I mean, Tolkien was a devout Catholic, and if there's one thing that Catholics are known for, it's for holding on to literally anything <laughs> that ever had anything to do with the remotest holy event so 
if you're implying that it could be revered as some sort of relic, that would not be uh, at all out of Tolkien's worldview. Um, but anyway, uh, after kind of ex- explaining a bit about how Gollum had once carried this this quote unquote treasure, Frodo basically says, "Well, actually, all he wants is to eat some fish. <laughs> that's that's all that brought him here." As he. As for, as as Gollum comes out of the water holding yeah, two fish. Yeah, holding one in his hand and one in his mouth. And, of course, the guards that are there uh, speak pipe up and remind him, well, uh, the punishment for trespassing here is death, you know, regardless of the reason that you came here. It's punishable by death. And especially taking fish out of this pool would <laughs> right. also be pretty damn bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, don't come here and also don't take fish. Uh, but... So Faramir asks, why should they spare him? And Frodo's response, um, of course, is pretty astute as to what we've uh, learned about these characters. First off, he basically says Gandalf would have spared him. Gandalf would not have wanted him to die. Um, And additionally, that Gollum's fate is tied to Frodo's errand. Um, and and that he's Frodo's guide. And and to that end, what you were saying, invoking Gandalf, is something that I kind of wanted to touch upon, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think for most people that read this book, uh, meaning the Lord of the Rings, not the Two Towers, um, one of those passages that you take away the most strongly is, you know, the pity that Bilbo hadn't slayed him when he had the chance. Yeah. Um, and Frodo is really kind of coming around to understand this in a way that that Sam isn't. Because Sam is still very contemptuous of, of Gollum, but you know mm-hmm. b- by this point Frodo is very much um, pitying him and you know referring to him as pathetic, not in uh, a derogatory way, but in a in a way that is like you know uh, it, it is sad, it, it is such a, a sad thing that has happened to Gollum. Well, and Frodo can empathize with him at this point too. I think that's important to remark that. Um, Gollum has held the ring for, you know, hundreds of years and Frodo has now been carrying it, bearing it for a while. Um, And I think that's an important note to make that Frodo has some kind of sense uh, already of the, like the weight of the ring we've. So by this point, would we say that Frodo has been the ring bearer for what, like, you know, six months, Mm. eight months, or would we say that it's been for 18 years? I was literally thinking about that just then um i i would say physical contact yeah. is necessary it was it was out of sight out of mind for those 17 years so i mean could we also argue that to a degree it is more active when the per- i mean because i feel like it's always active of course mm-hmm. but it's very different than when just Bilbo is just hanging on to it and Gollum is just hanging around and they're not doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that Frodo is explicitly has the plan of, I'm going to take this thing into Mordor and drop it in a hole mm-hmm. is probably having much more of an adverse effect on him. So it's probably mm-hmm. compounding a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I I, I agree with the the statement that the power of the ring is going to have been significantly more strong over over Frodo, you know, for the past year than over the past 17. But I really think that there's this kind of latent power that is kind of, you know, just the familiarity with the ring, the the proximity 
I, I, I do think that that has kind of slowly affected Frodo. And I mean, aren't we even told that Frodo is kind of presenting as youthful? Like he didn't, you know, much as Bilbo stopped aging, like Frodo doesn't really mm-hmm. look his age. Yeah, the, the, the only way that, the, the only indication that we have though is, is uh, a couple times Sam, when he perceives Frodo, he perceives that Frodo yeah. looks... Um, I don't know. Weird. Regardless, but that's but that's also due to the yes. ring. So regardless, you know, Frodo has held the ring for about a a mere percent of of what Gollum did, but he can empathize mm-hmm. just by knowledge and of this power. We have to remember too that you know the Dark Lord has been gaining strength, particularly in these recent couple of years. So. Um, I, that's going to have an effect as yes. well. Um, so Frodo basically convinces Faramir, let me go down and speak to him. Uh, you know, do not kill him. This is my, my request. Uh, I will go down and speak to him. You can, you can be waiting up here with a bow. And if I fail, you can shoot me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, basically Frodo is wanting to uh, offer that he he can get Gollum to come quietly, um, because it's either he must be killed or he must be captured. And Faramir even kind of like repeats himself of the sense that like he 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 can't let Gollum go. Like yeah. it's more of like I don't know if I can do this for you. Like this well, might be can't. a step too it's, far. It's their law. Yeah. Yeah. Um and. So as as Frodo is going down to the water and he hears that voice, even Frodo has a, a a brief moment where he considers, I could be free of this voice if I just let them kill him. Um, but then part of him but is he like, can't. but you won't be able to get in the Mordor, and he seems like the mm-hmm. one person who knows. Yep, he 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 needs Gollum, and remember we've mentioned before that truly the hobbits are very much relying on Gollum they need him to be their guide to get them where they need to be in order to carry out this errand and it's not Um, it's not just that Frodo you know had that thought like I could be without the voice it's he like actively wished that he would never have to hear Gollum's voice again yeah yeah um but of course he remembers he needs him and he remembers Gandalf wouldn't have wanted that uh and I think that's one thing that really drives a lot of Frodo's decisions um, is thinking back to what would Gandalf do, which is a thing that we almost ask ourselves, I feel. Well, and it, I mean, yeah. in the same sentence as invoking Gandalf, it says, they would have foundered in the dead marshes, but for Gollum. Actually, yep. Yep. The, the previous sentence, I didn't see that period. I thought it was a full sentence. Sorry. Anyway, yes. Um, so Frodo is like kind of admitting that he he actually did owe a certain gratitude to Gollum. Yeah. So he kind of, you know, walks up and he he says Smeagol softly. And Smeagol is kind of saying like, fish, fish to himself. Mm-hmm. I can't do a Smeagol voice. <laughs> and he basically, yeah, so Frodo calls to him and asks him to come so that the men won't kill him. <laughs> he says, you need to come with me so the men won't kill you. And Gollum resists. Um, he He's very reluctant at first. He's, he basically calls Frodo out, says that he abandoned him. And he says, no, I won't come. Uh, and Frodo, of course, very cleverly persuades Gollum with the ring. Yeah, the precious 
Mm-hmm. He starts putting emotions towards it. Yeah. In a, in it, like, it wants you. It yeah. wants you to come mm-hmm. here. It'll be it'll be sad or mad or mm-hmm. it, was, it was weird. Right. <laughs> Which again, remember in the very beginning how he the, in the taming of Smeagol that he had basically persuaded Smeagol to give him to basically swear fealty to Frodo on the precious. On the precious. Yep. And and um, Frodo's feeling quite conflicted at this moment. Not conflicted in the sense that he wants to be rid of Gollum but needs him, but conflicted in the fact that he knows that Faramir is going to capture Gollum and he knows that Gollum is going to view this as treachery. Yes. And Frodo feels like this is this is a trick that he's playing. Um because he he knows. Uh yeah, he has this information that Gollum doesn't have and he's you know, promising him, we're, we're going to go now, but we need to go back and get Sam. Um, and Frodo leads him over to where the men are waiting. And of course, instantly Gollum realizes he he, he kind of has a, a pause and realizes there's men here. And, you know, of course, shouts wicked Trixie false at, <laughs> at Mr. Frodo. And, and uh, Anborn, who was the kind of the ranger who captured Gollum, says hold still or we'll stick you as full of pins as a hedgehog hold still so mm-hmm. now we know that hedgehogs exist in middle earth yes <laughs> i just wanted to thing. make sure we covered that important important piece of that's information. very very important detail concerning yes. hedgies yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and Gollum rightfully feels betrayed by frodo and he spits on him um and yeah. they they take him back to the cave and this, I mean, this is an intriguing situation to me because, again, you know, we, we said Frodo felt guilty for tricking Gollum. Yes, Gollum feels betrayed yeah. by Frodo, as he rightfully should. However, I find it so intriguing because Frodo has saved Gollum's life uh, from being shot by the men by betraying him, basically. And he betrays Gollum in order to save his life. I just think it's a it's an interesting kind of like moral place that we haven't really seen Frodo go to yet. Like Frodo hasn't ever really uh, ever really tricked anyone. Yeah, that is true. He's been kind of um, pure mm-hmm. in I a mean, sense. There's there's a continu a continuum of deception mm-hmm. that Frodo has kind of been going down because he did deceive everybody in Hobbiton when he moved. Yeah. But I'm not putting that on the same plane as a calling to Gollum saying, we're going to go now and, you know, bringing him out for men to capture him. I don't, but, but I don't I mean, put those on the same. You know, but I, I specifically said it to continuum because I think that it really is part of the same process. Like as mm-hmm. as the influence of the ring is growing on Frodo and as Frodo is being put in more of a dire position, he's really having to undermine more and more mm-hmm. uh, the core beliefs uh, of a hobbit. You know, one was to leave his home like hobbits would never have done that. And, mm-hmm. you know, he he did it. He invented a weird lie. He fooled everybody. And, you know, now he's just continuing and it's like getting worse and worse. Like he's having to betray more and more of of his kind of cultural heritage. Um, who his... that sounds like <laughs> might sound like an old friend named Bilbo a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but at least for Bilbo, he got to like get all this 
I don't know, all this gold and like super fancy and like Frodo is just in the doldrums right now. That is true. <laughs> Frodo's pathway in this whole thing is a little bit more selfless in a mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he's telling lies, but he's telling lies in that. Uh, no, we need to be under like stealth mm-hmm. and, and take care of this thing. Yeah. Um. So so now Faramir has the creature Gollum, and he he tries to question him, and of course Gollum is not being cooperative. Which I don't even necessarily think he can be cooperative to someone like Faramir. <laughs> so. Um. But but then Faramir allows Frodo to un to to unbind Gollum's hands and feet. Uh, and and that helps a bit, and Frodo tries to persuade Gollum to trust Faramir. And um, you know, Faramir's questioning him, trying to figure out if he knows where this place is, if he's ever been here before, and Gollum says he hasn't. And Faramir basically says he does. You know, he, Faramir doesn't really know that he can believe Gollum, but he accepts what he said. Um, well, what I love though is, is Gollum's, you know, he, Faramir says the penalty for coming here is death, whether you meant to come here or you only came here in search of fish. Mm-hmm. And then it says Gollum dropped the fish from his hand. Yeah. Don't want fish. Yeah. He said. <laughs> fish? What fish? Bit. That was such a great bit. What fish? I don't see any fish. I don't have a fish. <laughs> um... And yeah, so Fer- but Faramir basically tells him, okay, well, you have to swear you're never going to come here again. And um, you also, you know, and Frodo again insists you can't harm him. And Faramir says, okay, here's the thing. Frodo, you are free in Gondor for a year, a year and one day, right? Is the time. A year and one he day. Him- yeah. Yep. Um, he says, you can't ever come here unless invited, though again after after that and he says frodo you have my protection and gondor as long as, uh, as well as your companions um and you know you can come before the steward of gondor and he and, and my word will go until you see him <laughs> uh, and then he can decide and so along with that Gollum would be safe so long as he was frodo's servant because frodo's companions would also be protected Yes, and um, two things I want to address. It says, I do take Smeagol under my protection, said Frodo. Sam sighed audibly, and not at the courtesies of which, as any hobbit would, he thoroughly approved. Indeed, in the, shi- in the Shire, such a matter would have required a great many more words and bows. <laughs> so when I love that it was like, there was a propriety to this ceremony that Sam approved of, but hobbits would have had even more propriety. Mm-hmm. Um but then also uh, kind of discussing what Chase had said earlier about like Faramir's weird language. And this was a little confusing for me as well. It was, uh, Faramir says, then I will declare my doom. As for you, Frodo, and so far as lies, blah, blah, blah. That's when he grants him the, the freedom to speak about or to walk through Gondor. Um, but specifically, I will declare my doom. Like, is, is that just a verbiage I'm unfamiliar with? I yeah. Uh, I uh, I, know, honest... I I picked that out too, and it weirded me out. Is that a reference to the fact? By this point, does Faramir know where they're going? Because that becomes a big part of this is the fact that Frodo references Minas Morgul 
and the what's it called? Uh, Syria. Uh, Kirith on Gaul. That actually happens like basically on yeah. the next page. Oh, okay. But I mean, Vermeer says doom twice. He says, "I will declare my doom," uh, which was to allow Frodo to to walk freely. And then he says later on, "Then I say to you," said Vermeer, turning to Gollum, "You are under doom of death. But while you walk with Frodo, you're safe for our mm-hmm. part." Maybe it's in reference to oh. I know this might be a mistake. Well, However, I don't think it might affect me in the future. But if it does. Mm-hmm. Then I'll accept it. Yeah, I, I I would be inclined again. I that's uh, I would have to really look into it more. But I I am inclined to interpret that as um, a, you you are technically trespassers here, and I'm giving you my protection. But you know, I'm not the steward of Gondor. I'm not in charge. <laughs> yeah. So basically, if I'm responsible for you, so if you mess yeah. things up, uh, you mess them me. up for me. Yeah. Yeah, that seems right. Uh, so yeah, then they, then they discuss. Um, you know, he took us to the Black Gate, but there was no way in, so now he's taking us to another path. And Faramir <laughs> says, says, "Do you need? You shouldn't go over that mountain path. It's Eesh. called Kirith Ungal, and it's uh, there is some great evil that lies there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it's the only way, Kirith." Ungol. <laughs> Listen to that. Even I yeah. know what that Basically, means. Basically, Gollum knows more about this than he's letting mm-hmm. on to you. Um, nobody has been there in a- no man has been there in ages. I've not. I've not even gone as far as crossing this road. Um, the city there, Minas Ethel, the tw- you know was the twin city or the twin sister of our own but city. It- and if you remember back to the beginning of this chapter where suddenly the window on the west was uh you know was was lit up by the moon when he is talking about how beautiful this is uh Faramir even invokes ethel he calls the mm-hmm. moon ethel and talks about how the moon is is uh making its its path through the night so you know in the previous chapter in this chapter we had this really strong uh contrast of the sun and the moon and now we're talking about this contrast between the Tower of the Sun and the yep. Tower of the Moon. So Faramir then says, you know, this path is by uh, Minas Morgul, the former Minas Ethel. And, you know, back when the evil one was was powerful for the first time, he made nine rings and gave them to Numenorean men. And those nine, ring, those nine rings turned those nine men into ghosts and those wraiths moved into that city and that city is a place of evil now and death and do not go near it Frodo because there are lidless eyes that and Frodo says well there's no other way so (laughs) Um, and then Faramir again tries to appeal to Frodo saying well I don't think Gandalf would have chosen this way (laughs) and Frodo's like well Gandalf's not here Uh, and we have no choice and also no time so um, there we go and again Faramir yeah warns Frodo against Gollum. He 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 says he's murdered before I know it and there's still he he, he still is 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 a murderous uh creature. But but you know Frodo Frodo, Frodo says I yep. swore an oath to destroy this thing and I am going to get there using mm-hmm. the only way I know how or I am going to die in the and process. And then I I really like uh kind of the way this chapter ends. Uh you know Faramir mentions that he would like to know how Gollum came to have this ring because again um I, I, I still feel that Faramir doesn't really grasp the concept of the ring 
um and he so he he he's he wants to know how how someone like Gollum came across it and he he says to Frodo well, guess that, what man he murdered people <laughs> <laughs> he says he says to um to Frodo that one day when he uh, and 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 Frodo are old Frodo can tell him that story <laughs> he says one day when we're old and bound in chairs <laughs> <laughs> that and, and that's Assuming that uh, that they're both living. <laughs> yeah, and then that's basically the end. Like, I wish you well, Frodo. Um, if you know, if ever beyond hope, you return to the land of the living, and we retail our tales, sitting by a wall in the sun, laughing old grief. You shall tell me then, until that time or some other time beyond the vision of the seeing stones of Numenor. Farewell. Just a really mm-hmm. kind of beautiful ending where, you know, Faramir says, I, I don't know how else you're going to accomplish what you want, what, what you need to do. But I, yep. I, feel, I feel like in this moment, Faramir is about to just leave the picture for a while, especially since the next chapter is called Kirith Ungol. So <laughs> no, the next chapter is called Journey to the Crossroads. Oh, that's right. Kirith Ungol's right after that, isn't it? I so. um, we have so know. few chapters, so I've kind of, I've kind of looked at the next two, and I they frankly yeah. left my brain. The, yep. st- the stairs of Kirith Ungal is is chapter after Journey to the Crossroads. Okay. So anyway, perfect time to segue into our favorites. Um, mine probably just that contrast that I just mentioned. You know, between the sun and the moon, the tower of the sun and the tower of the moon, in the window of the west when looking at the sun versus when looking at the moon. Like, mm-hmm. I just really like the way that that was set up and framed. Um, keep in mind That's- also the way that this ties into Telperion and Laurelin, the yep. uh, silver tree and the gold tree, which became the sun and the moon, uh, who destroyed the trees, but Anguliant, like... This is fantastic imagery, but also just fantastic... Uh, like payoff again of storytelling that that we have exactly um yeah just this beautiful kind of circle uh com- like completion of of everything we've we've come to right now you know it's a very simple image but also there's so much behind that simple image yeah um i think my favorite part from this chapter was just uh what i had talked about earlier with that kind of um, moral ambiguity of Frodo's kind of saving Gollum's life by by tricking him, um, because I think it's a it's an interesting development in Frodo's character, and um, also just kind of a, a, a delicious little bit of of narration. Uh, for me, it had to be the early 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 description when sam was going past the waterfall and we were having another description of it but this time in the moonlight Mm -hmm. that was my favorite bit i particularly liked the description of the water reflect or the light reflecting off of it being like melting icicles yeah silvery like silvery melting icicles yeah that was a brilliant description for that silvery melting icicles and like ropes of pearls or something like that yeah I've really dug all that stuff. I dug it in the last chapter, and I loved it in this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also the the silver thread. Yeah, silver, silver thread. thread. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
As somebody like me who's overtly fascinated at looking at water for some weird reason mm-hmm. and how it refracts light, I, I got behind that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, outside of the world of Tolkien, mine is fairly simple, fairly predictable. Uh, I can sum it up with one quick jingle. Unbreakable. <laughs> Stay alive, damn it. <laughs> it's a miracle. So, Have you finished watching it all? Um, No, I have two episodes left as of this moment. Two episodes left. I okay. will say I don't think the season as a whole is as strong as season one. Um, Tina Fey is kooky and weird and just bizarre. And I think that, honestly, she benefited in season one from having been prepping the show for NBC, having to rein that in a little bit. Yeah. I think yeah. when it is successful in season two, it is so much funnier. But I think when it fails, it it falls a lot more flat. It's got a real... Um, again, I've liked it too, uh, but I'm only halfway through the season. But again, it's got a real Arrested Development season four vibe in the pacing issues. Yes. Which is... Rest of Development was a fantastic show when it was a solid 21 minutes, but the moment it was like stretching past 30, started to kind of break down a little bit. This show kind of has that same sort of weirdness, but I like the aspects that there's more Titus singing. I also love the character of Mikey. Yeah, and overall, I think the problem with that is that when you give them that extra 10 minutes, it allows you to tell a more complex story, which is kind of fundamentally oppositional to the idea of what a situational comedy is. So, you know, I'm not saying that comedy can't be narrative because look at Orange is the New Black, but yeah. Tina Fey clearly is not, and I mean, Robert Carlock as well, clearly are not as uh, versed in that world of writing. So it just, it feels a lot more awkward than what we're used to. But I still laughed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> also more Amy Sedaris, brilliant choice. I I have I I was struggling to th- think of a thing this week. I I'm going to be able to start uh, consuming media more regularly soon, <laughs> so that I will actually have interesting things to say and recommend. But I will say that uh, who who sent that gif earlier of the of oh, the, the, vine? the the lawnmower oh, the vine? John, yeah. Yeah. Was, did John? That. Okay, so John tweeted because uh, what what we do as friends is just tw- <laughs> tweet each other ridiculous vines or gifs or something almost and exclusively. So to, Yes. Yeah, pretty much. That's how we communicate to each other. And um, so it, it's just like a lawnmower and it takes off and it's got that like Mariah Carey vocal behind it. It I don't it, it made me cackle profusely. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't, that was my favorite thing this week. <laughs> One of my coworkers like sent that in our um, our private room in Slack. And I like burst out <laughs> laughing when I saw that. And I was like, oh God, I have to share that immediately. Speaking of which, I'm, I, I appreciated I'm sending it. y'all something right now. There you go. Right there. All right, <laughs> so here keep com- that going. But here comes another one. <laughs> yes. I mean, like as friends, we have been so dependent on Twitter as our primary method of communication for so long that when Chase and I were yeah. roommates for two and a half years, it would be like, <laughs> yeah. I would tweet at Chase and be like, your popcorn is ready. From the- <laughs> Yes, I remember that. I have I have people who follow me in like Indiana and stuff going what that was weird you know <laughs> who follow both of yeah. us you know and we'll see that sort of stuff it's how we communicate okay oh it's just natural to us yeah um 
Uh, the only real thing I got is I've been in the process of, and I think kind of doing this podcast has kind of inspired me a little bit because I've realized that while reading Tolkien, I found that in doing this podcast, I, I, I love Tolkien's writing and feel like he's more on point with kind of like how my brain works as well. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of inspired me to try and actually try to take some of the jumbled ideas I have in my head and actually write a book. And this has been like a year long process with an idea I've had for like 10 years and I am having some real trouble. And a friend of mine I was talking with who has just finished the third draft of a book she's working on had given me some uh, nice resources. And one I was reading through today was uh, Susan Denhard. Denard, who's a young adult writer, has a great little thing about like, it, it's just simply like how she plans a book. Mm-hmm. And that has like helped me immensely. So it's like on her website, which is just susandenard.com. Um, Denard is spelled D-E-N-N-A-R-D. And it's mostly about outlining because that's my biggest problem. Because my biggest problem is not having ideas. It's just I have this jumbled mess of an imagination. Just spill it out on the page. <laughs> well, I was just trying to like condense it down to something that's organized and makes sense. And is linear because mm-hmm. if I am left to my own devices, I start spouting off the end of the book and the beginning of the book all at the same time. <laughs> and I mean, to that so, end yeah. with being inspired by Tolkien as a writer, and I was thinking this because this chapter was a really lovely chapter. Um, Indeed, it was short, yeah, but, it was great. I, but I was thinking like as I was reading this chapter um, and there's no way to, sa- to say what I'm about to say without kind of reinforcing some stereotypical divisions of literature but you know for a lot of people fantasy is is just not serious literature and um you know there's there's the canon the literary canon or literary mm-hmm. fiction and then paraliterary fiction which is like genre fiction like everything else but even like within that conceit you know Tolkien and the, the Lord of the Rings is generally perceived to be kind of the creme de la creme of a fantasy of genre fiction of paraliterary fiction and also possibly you know good enough to be in the literary canon and you know while it's a largely like a bs metric that's supposed you know <laughs> boosting the uh the the self-worth of you know a bunch of white men or whatever um i you know i do think that there's a lot more literary merit to tolkien than a lot of other books that aspire to do the same thing and so i was kind of you know thinking what is it about that well i particularly like i mean ultimately and I may have said this when we were doing our uh, beginning of the or end of the year stuff mm-hmm. last year was what I found out while doing this is just how much I love lore. Yeah. And having lore to something gives weight to everything in the world. Basically, even if even if the reader doesn't necessarily even know fully that lore as a writer, Tolkien knows that stuff already. He knew everything. The Silmarillion, he knew the back history of this world in it and you could feel it through his writing. Right. And I've realized that that is what I really love about reading all this is the fact you feel the weight of the world at every single like moment. And it, it really, really effectively, um, speaks with kind of that weight and that gravitas and the emotion that comes with all of that. Because I think when you break it down, and this is not meant to be derogatory, but when you break it down, Lord of the Rings is actually a fairly simple storyline, but it's examined so closely. You know, no stone is left unturned and no thought is left unthought. And mm-hmm. it's it's that that he brings to it that, that makes them so, so good and so effective is it's because 
you you could tell this story in 300 pages, but it would not be told in this way. It would not be as effective. It would not be as emotional. It would not be as engrossing, you know? So it's the ability to tell that story in that way and not have it be exhausting. Which is exactly what he set out to do and precisely <laughs> what he did. I think, I like, again, I, I don't, like... Yeah, because if you go back all the way to, you know, what it was at September when we were discussing the author's forward yeah. and he was saying, you know, what was his goal in writing Lord of the Rings to write an epic high fantasy novel that makes some people feel something. Yeah, <laughs> but it's also like, however, it's very different than just reading that and going, yeah, whatever. And then actually reading, actually it going, reading it going, oh, oh OK, oh. so the man says he's going to do a thing and then he does the thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think ultimately for me, it's that the characters are real people with real motivation. Yes. Which so often the problem that I have when I'm reading a lot of books is that the characters don't really feel like they're acting um, of their own wants and desires and emotions. They feel like they're acting to create a story. Mm-hmm. Well, and a friend of mine and we were, our coworker and I were discussing this about science fiction, how the problem with a lot of science fiction, for example, is that characters are not necessarily characters. You're just neat. There's just necessary forces within the framework of the story mm-hmm. and that really the world is just going to like do its thing and the characters don't matter. And I've really realized that the science fiction that stood out to me is the big is the stuff that focuses on character. Yep. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's why I like Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, exactly. Um, because I've been rereading Isaac Asimov's foundation and it changes characters every chapter because it jumps 500 years where all it cares about is it's it cares about its world and it's a great world but that's all it cares about mm-hmm. <sighs> well Tolkien you're great <laughs> <laughs> all right well Katie you want to take it off take it away yeah so once again I would like to th- give a shout out thank you to our patreon supporters we appreciate your help so much in uh throwing us a a dollar or whatever amount that you can our way so that we can maintain our website and purchase equipment when we need it um thank you so much to brian osborne kyle thompson michael smith ji ying fua ariel am devin mann uh, Jacob Verma, Aaron Crawford, Benjamin John Macy, Mike Williams, Avon McMaster, and Micah. All right. And next week we will be reading and discussing Chapter 7 of Book 2, The Two Towers, Journey to the Crossroads. So look forward to joining you then. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Chase. We'll see you next week. I almost burped on the mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what that face was. was <laughs> Hello, Kimmy Schmidt. Like, did, I, did I say something... Thank you for listening to Talking Tolkien. You can find us online at TalkingTolkien.com and you can send us an email to the professor at TalkingTolkien.com. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, theories, and themes you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are also Talking Tolkien on Facebook and Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating on iTunes as it really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 per month to help our podcast grow. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge. And we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. 
So look forward to joining you then. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Chase. We'll see you next week. I almost burped on the mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what that face was. I was... <laughs> Hello, Kimmy Schmidt. Like, did, I, did I say something?